asking to touch someone's hair, period. Like when our door got broken, you know, a coworker was like, oh my God, it's so ghetto that we like use a wooden board to replace the glass. Complaining about someone's music when it's rap music, but when Taylor Swift is playing, everyone's having a good time. Being like overtly explicit about sexual experiences and only targeting her and talking to her about it. He's not talking to any of the other like male identifying people in the room about this. You might be asking yourself, what do all of these statements have in common? Well, they are all examples of microaggressions. My name is Juliana Clark, and I'm here with you today to talk about what microaggressions are, how they affect us, and what to do about them. Now, to understand what drew me to this subject area, we have to go back for a second. In February 2019, I began my first full-time job, working at a production company in Culver City. I had worked freelance gigs before, internships, and part-time jobs, but I had never been offered a salary or benefits before. After spending the first few months post-college struggling to find my career direction, I was so excited to finally kick off the next chapter of my life. But then I was forced to confront my new reality, a reality that sharply contrasted with what I had known throughout the past four years of college. Barnard was where I found my community, a group of people with whom I could be fully myself and talk about the issues that really mattered to me. Feminism, art, wellness. No subject was off the table of discussion as long as you could speak thoughtfully and compassionately about it. There were people that I would have to interact with on a daily basis who regularly made problematic comments and had no desire for self-reflection. I was hurt and I was angry. So I decided to do what I had always done throughout college, talk about it, and eventually make art. Before we go any further, let's define the word microaggression. So microaggressions are the subtle, everyday types of discrimination that people experience in their everyday lives, oftentimes unintentional and unconscious, but which communicate negative life and biases towards people of historically marginalized groups. That's Dr. Kevin Nadal, an author, activist, and psychologist who is a leading researcher on understanding the impacts of microaggressions on the mental health of women, people of color, LGBTQ individuals, and other marginalized groups. So there are lots of microaggressions that people experience as a result of their race, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, ability status, religion, and so forth. Um, And these can occur anywhere, ranging from the workplace to schools to within families to on the streets at the supermarket um, and so forth. And so what people tend to do is they tend to view the extreme um, and fail to recognize some of uh, the more um, subtle, nuanced, um, individual types of situations. One helpful way of thinking about microaggressions is from Brittany Richardson, a mental health clinician who works at a hospital in South LA called Dignity Health and who facilitates a generational trauma group in Chinatown. Yeah, I call them cobwebs. You know, when you walk through a cobweb and it just kind of feels gross, but you're not harmed in any way. That feeling sticks with people and you don't really know where to put it because you can't really like grab it and take it off of you like a cobweb. Now, microaggressions may not harm the receiver in a way that is immediately visible. However, the effects do manifest in one's physical and or mental health. 
so research has found that when people experience microaggressions, that the more microaggressions that they experience, the more likely they are to present with different symptoms of depression, um, different physical health symptoms, um, higher symptoms of anxiety, higher symptoms of trauma. And so, you know, while correlation doesn't equate causation, we know that there's a relationship between microaggression uh, and uh, these disparities. So when you are a person of color, a person of historically marginalized groups, especially if you have multiple marginalized identities, like women of color, queer people of color, um, your experiences are such that you might have experienced discrimination or counter discrimination uh, throughout the entirety of your life. I remember that there was a girl at my old job who mentioned that her dad had given her a, quote, Hispanic name because he was attracted to Mexican women, end quote. When she said that, my stomach sank. It reminded me of all of the people that view Latinidad as a monolith. As a white-passing Latina who didn't grow up speaking Spanish, I always struggled with what it means to be Latin enough. The reason that microaggressions are an issue is because the person who's being aggressive in that way is letting you know what's true for them in their world. How do you survive when the people that are trying to help you aren't even really considering your own reality in like these like kind of situations? That's Sam Yang, who works at the intersection of the nonprofit world and visual arts in Los Angeles. He's been vocal about how microaggressions have been part of his career since he was an intern. It was kind of my introduction to like the code switching I had to start doing at work. You know, that was really when I realized I had to sort of pretend to be another person. When you deal with these kind of microaggressions, you lose faith in the mission of where you work. Like at my job, I'm not going to say where I work, but you know, like the, the, the greatest irony that I witnessed was my uh, boss talking to the board of directors about pushing for diversity in the workforce. And the board's like all white. Talking about diversity, it's like a chore because I can't tell if people are really pushing for it because they found a, a in to like really commodify it or because they really do care about it. Like it's hard to talk about this and it's hard to talk about microaggressions because it's like taking a risk. I mean, to me, because it's like, because you, you're, because if I talk about it versus a white person in my work talking about it, I suffer the most rep- repercussions and like I have to talk about it. But at the same time, it's like, you don't want to be the fucking mouthpiece. I think that this whole issue of like dealing with microaggressions is not just what happens on the surface, it's what happens underneath the surface. And kind of really we have to examine the whole structure of it. Got it. Okay. Seeing where the problem lies. One way of doing that is by helping people with dominant identities understand that microaggressions are hardly ever isolated instances. For many people... They are everyday occurrences, which is part of the reason that they are so frustrating. Vivian Liu and her classmate at Columbia University, David Zhou, created the Microaggressions Project in 2008 to illustrate just that. The Microaggressions Project began as a visual arts project where we were trying to capture the daily texture, uh, the everyday experiences of living with a different different kinds of marginalized identities. And we put it online on a Tumblr, and it went viral. We started documenting just from our own lives, everyday experiences we had had that were very subtle around race and gender specifically, um, and then documented them and then put them up on this Tumblr so people could kind of see that it wasn't about one comment or one 
kind of joking racist flyer, but it was this whole context of having to live with these everyday slights, uh, everyday messages that uh, that's kind of what was making people react the way they were. The more people that began submitting, including our friends, you know, it, the submissions expanded from race and gender to sexuality, class, religion, ableism. I learned a lot from talking with Vivian. One of the biggest reasons was that she was able to name the term's origin. So the term comes out from a black psychologist, I believe, scholar in the 1970s, Chester Pierce, who was describing um, experiences of racial discrimination. And the term was also then uh, taken up by Daryl Wing Sue, for example, at Teachers College at Columbia. He took the term up and a lot of his graduate students did. And so that's actually how I came across the term and my co-founder as well. At that time, it was really a, an academic, in academic circles kind of term. And so where it became popularized into popular media was really around, I would say, 2011, 12, when after our project went viral, you started seeing people writing about it in media. They would always have to define it uh, kind of in different ways. Now you kind of just will see people using the term without having to define it. At this point, I wanted to circle back about a question that I had asked Vivian around certain trends that she noticed around the project. You definitely will see trends at different times. In the summers, you would see an uptick of submissions around um, police violence, which is important to note, Some of, m- much of which weren't actually microaggressions, but there are parts of the incident that were microaggressions, right? Whether it's about identifying someone as problematic or dangerous or these kinds of things. Wait, can you explain that? For example, around the Trayvon Martin case, right, where a black boy was targeted and then shot. Certainly someone being shot is not a microaggression in any way. Where the microaggression you could arguably say is, is the point of identification, right? The moment in which he is being identified or being made to feel like he doesn't belong in that neighborhood, which was incited by George Zimmerman following him and then beginning to harass him, right? And so when you see any kind of actual violent incident where there's loss of life or bodily injury, there's still always microaggressions happening in all of that. And also, it's what enables that kind of behavior ultimately, right? So, microaggressions are really much more dangerous than we give them credit for. At this point, I asked Vivian to respond to Dr. Nadal's theory of discrimination as a spectrum. It's a spectrum, but it's also, even in the most aggravated outcomes, the psychology embedded in it is what a microaggression is part of. They're all even more linked than a spectrum. So if microaggressions are so dangerous and so insidious in everyday life, then is the solution to call them out when they occur? Brittany's take is... Well, one, honestly, I think it's exhausting, right? It's not your responsibility to teach people how to walk through the world. But at the same time, in Sam's words... It toils away at you and it eats you up. So what's the answer? perceiving racism as something that happens between individuals rather than a structural issue, it can be very difficult to talk about racism with individuals, whether they're your friends, but even, you know, your colleagues or your bosses. It's kind of hard because it's like an epiphenomena, if that makes sense. It's not the phenomena itself. It's like something that's, it's like a symptom of a disease, if that makes sense. So you can treat the symptom, but if you don't treat the disease, there's no real 
point almost. Um, but that being said, of course, how do you identify the disease? You have to know what the symptoms are. The Microaggressions Project was to give people vocabulary so that they could name what was happening. In this case, knowledge is power, and then what you decide to do with that really can be up to you. Now, the piece of advice given by every person that I talked to was for people with marginalized identities to take care of themselves and their mental health first. Know that self-care isn't always something that you have to do alone, but can manifest through community building. The co-founders of Color Film, Darby Rose and Lindsay Asplin, are a perfect example of the absolute magic that can manifest through solidarity, activism, and allyship in fighting microaggressions, as well as other forms of discrimination, specifically in the film industry. Color Film started as a movie night for women, and it turned into a place and a hub to connect filmmakers that identify as female and non-binary and trans and connect them to tools and resources to self-advocate in the film industry. When we did the interview, I had just ended my work day, but talking to her was the most I had felt like myself in months. When I've had microaggressions happen and I've had people around, none of them ever said anything. And so I think that's why we like really try to push making this platform and like providing these prompts to people so they can have these conversations. So if someone has something said to them and there's someone else who knows like, oh, this is the time to be an ally because I think allyship gets left out a lot. For those of you who don't know, an ally is, quote, any person that actively promotes and aspires to advance the culture of inclusion through intentional, positive, and conscious efforts that benefit people as a whole, end quote. That definition was taken from Cherie Atchison, who is Monzo's head of diversity and inclusion in an article that she contributed to Forbes. And this is why allyship is so important, particularly within the context of microaggressions. I think if you are in a position of power or privilege, like it's your responsibility to call out microaggressions because you are coming from a place that is safe. And on the other side of it, like again, as someone who's like experienced microaggressions or discrimination, like the moment's only gonna change if someone else is gonna have my back. And there it is. One big whopping call to action for anyone with a dominant identity. In a lot of ways, my journey overlapped with Darby's. We're both women of color trying to make a living in the arts and had stumbled into toxic jobs in the process. But by doing the wrong thing, we discovered the right one. And at some point, the idea came up. I was like, workshops? I'm curious about teaching workshops. So I... I was like, well, I have some ideas. They were generated off the job I had just quit. I was kind of like, I got nothing else to do. May as well come up with some workshop ideas. And so with the people that are, you know, female identifying, working in film, TV, and new media, um, I got us all together in my living room for a night. And I had like three workshop ideas and we all just talked. And I went through the ideas and I was like, here's some ideas I'm thinking of. Like, what would you guys want out of these? What do you think? And it was just like a bunch of women in film. I just wanted to make a place that was like something I wish that I had that I think Lindsay wishes she had when we were working in these mm -hmm. jobs, feeling like we were alone. We were always having behind closed door venting sessions. And that's just so fucking exhausting. And so we just want to make a place so people know that they can like have a solution, take action and like there can be a better world. To get to that better world, we have to go back and remember why we chose to pursue jobs in creative industries to begin with. And the co-founders of Color Film encountered just that when they were asked to design for the nonprofit Rock Camp for Girls. 
That one was about the power of vulnerability and using emotions to create art. We taught them about storyboarding and just basically coming up with a story idea and writing as a group and individually and how everyone can have the same idea, but when you draw it out, it looks different. But the inspiration behind this workshop didn't come from just anywhere. Because we were talking about feel feelings and get shit done, too. That was our mantra at our old job. It was all about, like, I can embrace my emotions and, like, still get my work done, Mm -hmm. right? Because we get told we're sensitive or we're cold. So then when I was, like, writing out the proposal, I was like, feel feelings and get it done. (laughs) They never saw it coming. On the proposal to camp, I was like, by the way, for adults, it's get shit done. (laughs) No matter how terrible and awful microaggressions and toxic work environments are, you will be on the other side one day. Though it can be easy to dwell on what's going wrong at work, take time outside of the office to focus on what makes you feel of use and of value in the world. Then channel your energy toward that. Ask yourself about what your implicit biases are and how they affect the way that you see the world. And when you hear someone reveal theirs to a friend or a colleague, be an ally. This piece, Microaggressions, a symptom of a disease was recorded, produced, and engineered by me, Juliana Clark. Thanks to S. Achan and Sam Anderson for editorial support. The sound design was done in part by William Logan.